Good morning. It's so good to be back at, the, at Incarnation in Harrisonburg. It's been a joy to uh, experience a number of reunions over the weekend. Isn't it always sweet to get together again with brothers and sisters in Christ wherever you encounter each other again? Nancy uh, said to me, turned to me as we drove into town, she said, I love this place, and um, we love you, and we, we rejoice in your love for us. Greetings from your bishop, Steve Breedlove, my boss. He was with us this weekend. He's preaching this morning at Holy Cross Mission in Crozet. Uh, it's exciting to see all these new churches popping up around the valley and around our, the region, around our diocese. Um, lots of exciting movement going on these days. Uh, I'm not just the canon for leadership development, but for the past year I've also served as interim rector of All Saints Church in Durham, the church that the bishop planted once upon a time. And uh, God willing, they're interviewing, and uh, God willing by midsummer, when Nancy and I get back from a trip, uh, we'll have a new pastor. This weekend, as we gathered here in the region, as we gathered a month ago in Greensboro, as we'll gather a month from now in Philadelphia, we're trying to change the conversation. Uh, that's been going on all around the ACNA. Uh, I co-chair the ACNA's Committee for Catechesis. That's just a fancy word, an old word for passing on the faith, for laying the foundation of Christian basics. We're trying to change the conversation. The goal is to be a church that invests and engages in lifelong disciple-making. Well, we could talk about that in a theoretical way. I would love to tell you another time about the work of producing a catechism, but I'd rather paint a picture for you. Here's, here's the way that, that I like to help change the conversation. I like to get people's imaginations enlivened. So if you'll engage with me this morning in, in a little bit of a, an imagination exercise. Imagine our children and our grandchildren 20 years from now. Nancy and I now have six grandchildren in Nashville, Tennessee, and Elkhart, Indiana. I want to talk about one of them. His name is Maddox. He's a boisterous little three-year-old. And I've been thinking lately, what do I want Maddox to look like 20 years from now? Well, my answer is that 20 years from now, he will, first of all, have a deep love for the Word of God. I want him to be a part of a community like the Church of the Incarnation, whose magnetic center is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus, that in Jesus God's good and gracious kingdom has arrived on earth to renew and heal all creation. And as you've been hearing, as you've been winding your way through Mark's gospel this year, that good news of the kingdom arriving in Jesus was demonstrated in miracles, taught in parables. We'll hear during Holy Week how it was secured on the cross and on Easter Sunday, we'll celebrate on the farm and here in the sanctuary that it was inaugurated in, in resurrection. I envision Maddox, 20 years from now, astonished by that gospel. 
Are you? Are you ever anew surprised by the goodness of God's grace? Secondly, I envision and pray that Maddox, 20 years from now, will know and love the promise and presence of the Lord Jesus in the Eucharist. That he'll yearn to be with God's people at the table of the Lord. I pray that 20 years from now he'll have a pastor, someone who cares for his soul. And beyond that, I hope he has a lively sense of his own calling to kingdom work. I hope he's eager to give his life away in service to others, to seek the flourishing of the place he lives in and the people who live alongside him. I hope and pray that 20 years from now he'll have been taught to pray. That he'll love being with Jesus. And that he'll love not just being alone with the Lord, but that he'll love gathering with God's people in public praise. I hope and pray that he will live joyfully under the cross. That in the words of J.I. Packer, he'll know at a deep, deep level what it means that weakness is the way of the kingdom. But finally... I hope and pray that 20 years from now, little Maddox will have grown up to establish a a pattern of life in which he lives repentantly. And this is what connects us to today's gospel reading. That his life will be marked by combat, fighting sin. You've already encountered many of these themes in Mark's gospel this year. And we find ourselves this morning, as we did last week already, I think Drew preached, uh, find ourselves right in the midst of the great discipleship discourse. And we get a picture of ourselves, if we're paying close attention, as people who are intoxicated with themselves. We're not as interested in serving as being served. We're not as interested in giving as receiving. We're not as interested in pursuing God's way as getting our own way. We're not as interested in being the least as being the greatest. We're people who need this gospel reading today. I told Mike that I wanted to title this sermon and have emblazoned on the cover something different from what ended up appearing there. He thought this was maybe just a little too oblique. Um, But my title for this sermon comes from the great Puritan John Owen, who in a moment sounding kind of like a Puritan rapper said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's the best summary of today's gospel reading that I could think of. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Owen called it the mortification of sin, and he wrote an 85-page booklet to that effect. Mortification of sin, just a way of saying killing sin. I envision my grandson growing up, having established a rhythm of life in which every day he goes to war in an effort empowered by the Holy Spirit 
to kill sin, a fighting faith. I envision that same thing for all of us, that we will learn from the Lord Jesus to take decisive and drastic action versus whatever habits or things or persons, however pleasurable they may be, but in fact are ruining our lives. With the Lord Jesus, I want to urge us to engage in spiritual amputation. So I invite you this morning, on the basis of this hard text, to be tough with yourself, completely decisive in moral matters. In moral matters, I think we know this, don't we? That immediate action is nine-tenths of the cure. Certainly when it comes to sexual purity, and that is, for the most part, the context for understanding these mandates of Jesus. In sexual purity, decisiveness is everything. Clear-headed, resolute decisions regarding what we see, what we do, and where we go. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus says it in no uncertain terms. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. You know, of course, that Jesus is not recommending self-mutilation. If we look at the parallel to this passage in Matthew's Gospel, right at the outset of the Sermon on the Mount, the same statement appears. And there it appears in the context where Jesus is calling upon his disciples to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The point of Jesus in using this graphic and extreme language is that we must deal decisively and radically with sin. We mustn't pamper it, flirt with it, enjoy nibbling a little of it around the edges. We're to hate it, crush it, dig it out. And in the case of adulterous lust, if your eye leads you astray, tear it out. Of course, what's abundantly clear is that the problem isn't with our body parts merely or our physical senses. The problem is with a corrupt and deceitful heart. Our external members are but the instruments we employ to gratify the lust that emerges from within. When Jesus, is when Jesus was advocating, therefore, was not a, a literal physical self-maining, but a, a ruthless moral self-denial. Take up your cross. It's the same message. Not mutilation, but mortification. That's the path of holiness Jesus taught. How are we to respond to the seductive and stimulating things we encounter in the world, in the media, at work, we're to act and live as if we were blind. Behave as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away and were now blind and so could not see the objects which previously caused you to sin. Again, if your hand or foot causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your hands, that is, the things you do, or your feet, the places you visit, then cut them off. Don't do it. Don't go there. 
behave as if you had actually cut off your hands and feet and had flung them away and were now crippled and so could not do the things or visit the places which had previously caused you to sin. To obey this command of Jesus will involve for many of us a certain maiming. We'll have to eliminate from our lives certain things which, though some may be innocent in themselves, either are or could easily become sources of temptation. In his own metaphorical language, we may find ourselves without eyes, hands, or feet. That is, we'll deliberately decline to read certain literature, see certain films, visit certain exhibitions. But if we do that, we'll be regarded by some of our contemporaries, our peers, as, as narrow-minded, untaught Philistines. What? They'll say incredulously. You've not read that book? You've not seen that film? Why? You're not educated. You're not with it. And they may be right. We may have to become culturally maimed in order to preserve our purity of mind. The only question is whether for the sake of this gain we're willing to bear that loss and endure that ridicule. Jesus was quite clear. It's better to lose one member and enter life maimed, he said, than to retain our whole body and go to hell. That is to say, it's better to forego some experiences this life offers in order to enter the life which is life indeed. It's better to accept some cultural amputation in the world than risk final destruction in the next. I'm fully aware, and so are you, that this teaching runs clean counter to modern standards. It's based on the principle that eternity is more important than time and purity than culture, and that any sacrifice is worthwhile in this life if it's necessary to ensure our entry into the next. It's the kingdom that matters, not being cool. We have to decide, quite simply, whether to live for this world or the next, whether to follow the crowd or Jesus. Now, it would be easy to veer off into specific descriptions of temptations, but you know, as well as I, that the sources of temptation differ according to our personalities, temperaments, and circumstances. Each of us has to learn our own personal areas of weakness. Some of you experience temptation regarding money. You find that as soon as money comes into your possession, you squander it on meaningless spending. Then, if that's true, then put yourself under the oversight of a wise and prudent friend who can monitor your income and spending. Who would do such a thing? If you struggle with out-of-control credit card debt, do what I did when my mother came and was lapsing into dementia. Cut the cards in half. Tear them up. Throw them away. Use a debit card. 
How do you handle movies today that consistently cross the line of moral propriety? Do you find that your mind is easily stimulated by sexual fantasies that lead to improper sexual behavior? Then put an end to watching those movies or TV shows. a real struggle. A big part of my job is reviewing and helping to form the next generation of clergy. It's not talking out of school for me to tell you that I almost never receive an application for ordination in which a young man and occasionally a young woman doesn't tell me that they have struggled or are currently still struggling with pornography. I couldn't find a control group of non-users. Over 60% of American clergy say they struggle with sexual brokenness. That's a conservative estimate. Do you have an addictive personality? Don't expose yourself to the temptations that you can't resist. Do you find yourself ex spending excessive amounts of time on Facebook so much that you can't provide for your employer the work for which you're being paid? Or if you're married and you find on Facebook that you're tempted to reconnect with a former girlfriend or boyfriend and you can't resist the temptation to return again and again to communication, Terminate your account. Yeah, we could go on to talk about texting. Every corner of the internet. I'm a huge Amazon purchaser. But it's getting harder and harder because every purchase produces a flood of nearly obscene advertising. We get tremendous help in this spiritual warfare from our liturgy, believe it or not. Thomas Cranmer, the brilliant crafter and renewer of liturgy who produced the Book of Common Prayer, Cranmer was a heart surgeon. From start to finish, the liturgy gives us language and courage and spiritual help in this effort to do battle against sin. We've already been there this morning. We began worship with the prayer for what? For purity. We came before God and prayed, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, from you, no secrets are hid. We gather and worship before a God who knows our temptations. And we pray to that God, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. Cranmer, the heart specialist, knew that we need 
heart surgery. A great scholar, uh, Ashley Null, who is one of the experts on Thomas Cranmer, has written Cranmer's entire work of renewing the worship life of God's people, all of his pastoral ministry revolves around this way of understanding the, the human person. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. He knew that we have diseased, ingrown hearts that produce unruly wills and affections. We need new hearts. So we come to worship to hear and accept the diagnosis, to recognize that we're sinners who need God's radical intervention. Jesus' graphic, uh, graphic picture of, of our sin and his graphic encouragement to amputate really does fit the actual pain that sin causes in our lives. But the remedy points to the fact that the actual offending organ is not hands or feet or eyes, but the heart, which of course, if removed, will cause death, not just injury, which is why Jesus had to bear the ultimate mortification. He died on the cross to put to death sin and evil and perversion and death itself. And in him, we live. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill the hearts of your faithful people. Set us on fire with your love. Lord, where we are weak, make us strong. Where we are timid, make us bold. Where we are confused, make us clear. And where we are dour, Lord, make us joyful. Help us, Lord, to be killing sin so that it will not kill us. And thank you, Lord, for fighting for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.